This episode's guest is Michael Mendiza, founder of the Touch the Future organization. In 1987, Michael founded Touch the Future, a non-profit learning design center whose mission is to promote optimal learning relationships between adults and children. A five-year exploration of optimum states of learning, wellness, and peak performance led to a revolutionary parenting and coaching model the authors call the intelligence of play. Touch the Future's top agenda is to provide a lasting foundation for Joseph Shilton Pierce's legacy and to extend this model for optimal learning relationships to specific populations, such as preschool, Head Start, childcare providers, public education, and amateur athletics. A documentary and educational filmmaker, Michael has researched and explored sensitive issues such as domestic violence, rape, the impact of media on learning, cultural and human development, the nature of intelligence, holistic learning models, the changing family, prenatal learning, the roots of violence, creativity, and peak performance. For two decades, Michael has gathered and published interviews with more than 50 researchers, scientists, authors, and performance specialists, including David Baum, Jay Krishnamurti, Ashley Montego, and of course, Joseph Shilton Pierce. Michael and Joe have been close colleagues for years. The unique tone of magical parent, magical child is an expression of their long lasting friendship and shared passions. Copies of the full interviews featured in Magical Parent, Magical Child, gathered by Michael, can be found at www.ttfuture.org, which is linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Michael and I discuss Michael's background. I asked Michael how he became aware of the works of Joseph Shilton Pierce, J. Krishnamurti, and Yogananda. I asked Michael about his current meditative practice. Michael introduces us to Joe. Michael shares with us his thoughts on enculturation. Michael discusses the concept of the model imperative. We discuss conscious parenting. I asked Michael to discuss the environment's impact. I asked Michael to discuss the environment's impact on the fetal's epigenetic expression and long-term health and well-being. I asked Michael about his newest book, The Life and Insights, of Joseph Shilton Pierce, Astonishing Capacities and Self-Inflicted Limitations. Guys, this was an absolutely incredible conversation with Michael, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, and we're recording. Michael, thank you so much for making time today. I've uh, been very much looking forward to our conversation today, so I really do appreciate it. Maybe just for the audience, Michael, just give us a bit about who you are and your background and, and where you currently are today. Oh, gosh, my background. Um, I'm basically a documentary filmmaker. Um, got a degree in film and television um, a long time ago. And I had a choice to make um, either go commercially, which would be pop culture and, you know, making commercials or making videos or films and that sort of thing. The music video business kind of exploded uh, during that time. And, and then I met Joe Pierce and, and a teacher named Krishnamurti and um, other areas. And it seemed to me that, that, um, that, that seemed such a, such a much more vital area to go. It wasn't commercially successful, but if I was going to use my skills, um, I would rather learn and grow as I use them instead of just doing the same thing over and over again, selling soap. So that began um, a 30-year process of finding interesting people and going out and knocking on their door and interviewing them. You could say it's similar to the podcast thing you're doing here. Zoom makes it pretty easy to travel from Dublin to, to California, um, but I had to get on the plane and go sit with them and meet with them and that sort of thing. So um, I've done that for years, um, interviewing. And Joe, Joe uh, Pierce was um, just to jump into Joe, um, my young son, <clears throat> second son was maybe 18 months old. And we had just finished doing some recordings of the Krishnamurti talks in Ojai. And we were in a, at, a, at an organic hot tub kind of place, natural hot tub springs. And the, the child was playing and 
someone said, oh, you have a magical child. And I had never heard the phrase before. And I said, well, what is that? And um, she said, oh, well, there's this wonderful book. It's called Magical Child. And it's the, you know, and <clears throat> at that particular time in my life, I was thinking about doing a PBS series on, on the new paradigm of human development. You could say child development or child rearing or parenting and so on and so forth. And I, you know, it occurred to me that all of the major um, institutions, school, religion, um, parenting as it is, and so on and so forth, medical profession, it <clears throat> was really out of date and, and needed an, an up, needed to be brought up to date. So I was planning to do this documentary series on that. And lo and behold, somebody uh, mentioned uh, Magical Child in Joe's book. So I read it and, and I, I, had a breath of fresh air because I says, oh, well, somebody's already done it, you know. So Joe had basically written what I was thinking that needed to be done. So I tracked him down over the next six months and we met a couple of times. <clears throat> and um, he was working with the City Yoga Foundation at that time, um, which was a big part of his life for over a decade. So we met and the, the connection that, that kind of bonded us was my observation with Joe. I said, you know, we, we talk about this thing called bonding. And, I, and we, sort, we sort of think of it as, as taking something from the outside. So the, you know, the child's reacting to the sensory system and you're looking and connecting sensorily. And I said, you know, I think that it, it's much deeper than that. I think we, we bond from the inside out. Uh, using what I would term at that point almost a telepathic kind of resonance, like a tuning fork. And um, so I explained to him why I felt that was the case. And, and um, he lit up and he, he basically said that, um, you know, nobody had, had articulated in quite the same way and um, he'd be happy to do anything he can to help. So that was kind of the beginning of, of our relationship. Um, and then it was pals actually it was it wasn't like joe's the joe wasn't distance he we became very very close friends um and and it was father to son he was a generation older than i was it was colleagues it was friends it was drinking buddies it was all it was that familial um we had very much the same interests um, our paths had crossed with different people, um, different things like that. So anyway, that's just a little bit of backstory of um, uh, my, my coming into relationship with Joe and um, some of my background. I know, and this, our conversation is going to center around Joe, his life and, and his, his work. But just before we dive into that, how did you like what made you want to study um, individuals like Chris Minority and I know you've also uh, studied uh, Yokananda and then obviously as we will get into Joe what what was it within you that sort of drew you towards these people? Oh great question um, you know I, I wasn't bright enough to be able to articulate it you know very succinctly but um, you know human development, how do we become what we are? And, and do we actualize our potential? Those are the two key questions. You know, what is our potential and, and are we actualizing it? And not just in how many neurons we're using, but in this broader sense. So um, Krishnamurti, um, gosh, uh, my relationship with Krishnamurti spans 40 years. Um, his, if you don't know who he is, his, his, uh, his archive of his speaking around the world is over a quarter of a million pages. It's the largest, um, you know, the most well-documented teacher in quotes that um, has lived. Um, certainly on par with other teachers such as the Buddha and so on. Um, so I, I was drawn to these people because of looking at myself, how did, how, asking myself those questions. What is human potential and am I actualizing it? And how do you do that? And obviously there's very, there's almost zero, almost minus zero um, focus on these issues um, in what we call mainstream development. You're basically 
bonded to culture. You're not bonded to your nature, which is nature. We're bonded to culture. And culture defines our, our uh, who we think we are. It defines uh, what we should try to become, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a disconnect between our true nature, which is this huge miracle that Joe and others write about, and, and um, culture. So this battle between identity, identifying with culture or identifying with our true nature is one of the fundamental things. So this was after I finished university studies, I realized that I didn't know anything. I mean, I literally got out of college and realized that, you know, what is art? What is music? What is, you know, what are some of these things? So I had to basically start my education um, after I got my education, meaning I had to liberate myself from the cultural overlay of, of what, what education is and then actually start to um, create my education. And, and that's where I reached out to these kinds of people. Um, I did a documentary on the life of Krishnamurti, which was his biography had just come out at that time and began traveling with him um, around the world and documenting his talks and interviewing people that he was close to, et cetera. Um, and that actually dovetailed into the Yogananda story. Yogananda, uh, one of the senior monks at the Self-Realization Fellowship in Los Angeles had saw the picture that I did for Krishnamurti and, he, and Yogananda's centenary birthday was coming up and they wanted to do something special, a biographical piece for him on his life. So they contacted me and I spent a year and a half working with them quite closely to do that. Um, but then uh, during the same time as, as background, the, uh, the, an area, a field of, of uh, research called pre and perinatal psychology was just beginning. And basically it's, it's what is intelligence and how intelligent is the unborn child? How sentient, how aware is learning taking place prenatally? And many of the pioneer researchers that were exploding this field, um, I forget how I met them, but I stumbled across them and it did the same thing was diving deep into what they were probing Again, this is what we think of intelligence as intellect, but obviously intellect is a small conditioned aspect of intelligence. Real intelligence is nature. It's much, much, it's creation. You know, intelligence is creation, not, not intellect. So being clear about those two changes fundamentally, how you look at what's intelligence and what the right thing to do is, et cetera. So, um, um, you just keep pulling on the string. I mean, the Krishnamurti, the Krishnamurti base um, took me internationally, and I met David Bohm, who was Einstein's protege in theoretical physics, and David was a friend for 15 years. Um, we met every time that I traveled to uh, Europe or that he came to California, and we traveled together to Canada. So I had this opportunity of you know, meeting these amazing people. I didn't even know who he was when I met him. Somebody said he was a scientist and um, I had, I literally had no idea um, the caliber um, of, of uh, person. Ashley Montague was the first interview that I did when I started my little nonprofit called Touch the Future. Um, he wrote 50 books on what it means to be human. Um, so I've just, reached out to people and done similarly to what you're doing, reaching out to people and connecting with them and inquiring and looking. So um, it's with that now, 40 years later, um, you know, I have all of the experience of, of those connections with human beings that, that have changed how I look at myself and how I look at the world. So that's, um, you know, that's, that's where Yogananda came in and kind of the broader picture. Again, and just one more follow-up question before we move on to Joe and, and his work is, what 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 do you do now? Because obviously Joe has passed, Krishnamurti's passed, and obviously Yogananda had long passed before you became aware of his work. What is your meditative practice now? Are you more in the role of facilitating the next generation, or do you still have peers that you would still communicate with? Is Is there still a I don't want to use the word guru, but is there still someone you go to uh, to, to study under? Well, what's your current practice looking like these days? Well, those are great questions. Thank you for that. Um, 
I don't have a, a, a wide group of friends or colleagues. I mean, I do. I mean, I can I, I connect with a number of people, obviously. Um, it dawned on me a few years ago that, as I mentioned before, all of our institutions are not preparing, are failing to prepare the next generation to meet the challenges that we are leaving them with. That's absolutely clear as a bell. You can't argue with that at all. Um, so what are the skills and capacities that the next generation needs to perhaps allow humanity to survive on, and along with most other species? So we're, we're in this great sixth extinction. Um, how do you, how do we face that? How does, how, I have a, I have a 43 year old and a 32 year old and I have a six year old, six and a half year old daughter. And so I'm, I'm, you know, living with that every day, you know, look at the, look at what's going on in the world, politically, environmentally, economically, um, et cetera. Um, you know, and so now having some tenure to look back and you see these great teachers have been pointing um, out the catastrophe that, that we are continuing to create exponentially. Um, and 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 we're you know our kids our kids have no resources whatsoever to live a fully human happy vibrant life faced with with what is on the horizon and what's you know unfolding today so that's kind of my broad quest and of course the the environmental issue is paramount because as I said before we are nature this false identity that we have with culture is uh, clearly our downfall. It's clearly the original sin, if you really want to put it in that context. Our, our, the original sin was the explosion of the neocortex and then thinking that, that what those images that the neocortex produce is intelligence and so on. So we, we've, we've missed the boat for 50, 60,000 years um, and now it's coming to, coming to roost, as you might say, that, that fundamental error. So the real challenge is to break the spell of the neocortex or intellect, um, to break the spell that it has, that it creates because its image making capacity is so uh, powerful. Um, it, the ability for imagination to create mental images is so powerful that it dominates and overshadows all of the other modes of being and ways of accessing information and relating to the world. So the new, so the cognitive structure is so strong. It's like cinemascope compared to, you know, an iPhone. Um, that's a nice little metaphor of the power of the intellect and imagination to enchant, but we're enchanting ourselves in this limited, this limited uh, self-centered, uh, really uh, mechanical structure which was the essence of Krishnamurti's um, key message. So we've, we've falsely identified with our intellect um, for centuries and at the exclusion of our true nature, which is nature. That's the easiest way to say it. So how do we, how do we break that spell and literally reset the default state of our identity reality, because I'm using identity in very much the same way that Joe would use it. Uh, identity is our reality construct. It's our self-world view. That was the, the phrase that Joe used. Identity is our self-world view. So our self-world view is defined by culture, whereas our true nature is nature. So we need literally to, re to break our identification with with culture and with intellect and imagination, and we need to go deeper and re-establish re a new base of, of our self-worldview needs to be with our true nature, not with the intellect. So how do we do that? Um, and, and technology is a big part of we're using technology to, to connect with, and kids are looking at the phones, and we know that this web of technology is, is spreading around the world. Um, and as Emerson said back in the late 1800s, the weaver becomes the web. Epigenetics, you know, you become what you relate to. So we are, we are increasingly 
distancing ourselves from this, from our true nature, which is nature, and we're morphing ourselves into a more technological cyborg kind of creature, um, which I predict will be the, you know, the, the demise, not the salvation. So basically that's what I'm currently working on is, is how from the ground up, from the very earliest stages of child development to reorient the ground of their perception to be um, with grounded in their and identified with their true nature. And then they, they put on the clothes of intellect and culture instead of thinking that they are the clothes, if that's a nice way of saying it. So sorry to be so long with that, but that's, a, that's the story that I'm currently working on. No, it's, it's perfect. And it actually segues nicely into areas of Joe's work, because I know a, a huge area that Joe used to write about was, you know, the intellect versus intelligence. And it, it, that was definitely um, part of his writings that had a big influence on me, like, and, and kind of changed my sort of perception of reality and how I saw the world when he started, you know, I always loved that follow up question. He said, you know, like, the intellect will say you know can this be done but the the intelligence of the heart always asks that follow-up question like should this be done and the example he used to give was like modern birthing practices you know that the, that for for millennia women could just the, you know that the birthing process of the baby the women just used to have that wisdom to be able to do that and then the intellect of the man in the white coat was like we can do this better in our hospitals and that's not and i'm not saying that there isn't a time and place where we do need that because there are certain complications that can happen during birth but it was just the example joe gave and you know it just really did resonate this i love that follow-up question he spoke about maybe though before i get into that michael just again for the audience can you, and I know you, we've kind of introduced Joe to a certain degree. Could you maybe give us a little more background of Joe, who he was as a human being? Um, you know, like as much as much of his life story as you think will give context to the listener before we can get into some of his workings. Well, if you'll if you'll switch on and let me share the screen, um, then I I've got a clip which was the first interview that I did with Joe. And I think it would be better to let him do that, let him tell part of his story. Um, and I, you know, I'd rather have him do it than me. So can we do that? Uh, yeah, uh, um, we can do that. Or if you want, you can also send me the, uh, the link to the video or and I can put it in the show notes. It's up to you. Well, I think it would be wise. It's, it's like six minutes. Um, let's see if we can do it. I would rather have people get a, get a feeling of who this guy is rather than just us. I think it'd be a great thing. Great. Yeah. Can you hear that? Yep. Absolutely. I would say it started with my writing the book crack in the cosmic egg. And I was looking at all the various phases of my own life and of my children's life, and the whole series of things that happened that were inexplicable within any modern academic scientific framework. And it wasn't that I was interested in the paranormal or the occult or anything else. It was just simply there were a whole series of events that would not fit in within any normal paradigm. And I wondered, in looking at myself and my own life, when I know good and well there were, there were critical points in my life when my potential was really very high and I knew it and I sensed it and I intuitively expected certain things to happen and instead you might say environmental disasters occurred which literally were so shattering that I could feel things in me simply eroding and disappearing, slipping between my fingers and uh, I began to realize that well, several things. Uh, I real, began to realize that what I would now term to be betrayed by a, a primary caretaker literally fractures. It's like taking a piece of glass and fracturing it. You know, things don't come back to focus after that. You're you're compensating rather than functioning. <clears throat> and then moving on up and, and beginning to observe my children, I would see certain things unfold in them, literally and then simply decay or disappear. It's fine. And I began to wonder what it is. What is the, the potential that unfolds and what is it that disappears? That was, the crack was simply a great huge protest 
it was literally kind of a cry of protest that there was far more than was being allowed on the current scene. And I had started writing it while teaching in the most conservative college in the most conservative state, Virginia, and uh, at the same time grappling with such things as degrees and PhDs and so on and so forth and the enormous demands and, and uh, the, the narrowing down, the constant narrowing down and exclusion of things in order to toe the line, in order to be politically correct, which was true then on, on certainly a very rigid level. And so my, and here was my own life, which had this series of extraordinary things that had happened, particularly in my 23rd year, uh, when a, a whole, for months and months and months, what has been called paranormal things occurred in, in, in quite striking ways. And to me, they were simply indications of what was really there. And um, the enormous tendency of us to screen those out uh, on behalf of a far more timid, limited, and apparently safe, but deadly, uh, a common consensus. And so my, my book, which I worked on for 12 years, was started off and for a long time remained a protest against my teaching colleagues for their own narrow uh, way of thinking. And then the, the things that had occurred in my, my graduate work in which I was, you know, ran across this stone wall of you either, you either come around to the, to the conventional way of thinking or you simply, simply can't, can't make that kind of a grade. And the great crisis I finally came to that it became either continuing writing the book crack or or going ahead on the degree program and, and uh, continuing in, in college. And the, the great crisis of that, which was a long drawn out thing, and I, I finally had to leap off of a cliff with my wife and four children on my back, so to speak. And uh, on behalf of, of going for what I, I felt to be true. And so then my second book follows up on crack and, and I, I then stumble across the whole thing of child development and the Piaget and Montessori and others had, had mapped out these stages which I, I had sensed but I couldn't articulate. One thing leads to another and the picture grows and grows and grows. Then I began giving those seminars as I wrote Magical Child just simply to explore ideas in public. I'd throw it out and get shot down. That was perfectly all right with me. I, I had no image to defend. I was really looking for um, exploring a whole series of, of uh, phenomena in our lives. And so by the time I finally got the book published, I'd received from my audience, it's already a great deal of material that uh, changed the shape of that book. And then from there on, I was found myself caught up in, I, I've often thought that I got uh, typecast like a Hollywood movie person. I had gotten typecast with child business and uh, I tried branching away from that in Bond of Power, and um, then Magical Child Matures came along as a, as a way of trying to correct the errors of Magical Child or the shortcomings. And uh, that's the way it's gone. But now, of course, I'm, I'm locked into that grid of, of concerns over childhood. And my original viewpoint was far broader than that. I was looking at the whole kind of cosmic drama we're caught up in and how we limit ourselves, why we limit ourselves, and what our, uh, what our dimensions really are. There you go. So I think the first area, and again, it's a nice segue from, from Joe introducing himself there, is getting into this topic of enculturation um you know one huge thing that joe continually spoke about was and he touched on it in the introduction video there was like what stops us from reaching our potential and it's a, it's a constant theme in his work and one of these things he talks about is this idea of enculturation which you also alluded to earlier on um when you hear that word or, or when you think of things that that inhibit us as as, as humans from reaching our full potential, where does this concept of enculturation, like what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and 
Well, yeah. again, as we as we said earlier, in in what my current exploration is, <clears throat> we have what we call the neocortex, its ability to imagine, which is linked to the to the to uh, this exponential growth of memory, both forward projecting into the into the future, and remembering elements that were going into the back. So, um, if you look at at the biology of it. Joe goes through this biology, but basically you have the more primitive brain centers. They don't have this, this memory. Um, the, the lizard brain, the reptilian brain is very much in the present moment. It's very sensory, doesn't have feelings per se. It's so you have the reptilian brain. Then the mammalian brain grew around that and, and evolved from there. And each of these brain centers has its own um, way of representing the external world as an internal image. So what we call senses, heat, touch, light, smell, even vision, these are all mental concepts. This is the brain creating a resonant representation of the external world so that we can relate to it. Um, there's no memory involved with the, with the reptilian center or the sensory motor center. Then you move into the, the, the mammalian brain <clears throat> and what happened biologically is that, that you took the reptilian brain and sensors grew inside the body to give us a resonant representation of what was going on inside as we were relating to the outside. So that doubled, or you know, we, we just doubled our, our self-world view because now we've got this different, um, a, a much bigger picture, literally, mental, mental construct of of who we are and how we're relating to the, to the world this moment. So then the neocortex comes along and with this explosive um, um, increase in the ability for memory in past and projection into the future. And we call that imagination and language and symbols and metaphor and abstraction. So that's where, <clears throat> that's where culture, language and culture emerges from from that from that system, and um, and basically we're that's the totality. That's the whole of our what we call our consciousness is pretty much defined by by that neocortex. Now um, we pay very little attention to the sensory, and we pay very little attention to the emotional until we're. But you know, I, I don't want to go into all that. But but basically. Um, culture is imagination. And now the problem with that is that is something called reification. We take an abstract idea, a symbol or a metaphor, such as God or, um, or our own personal identity, the ego, and we reify it. We take the mental image and we reify it, which is to treat that mental abstraction as a concrete independent reality. So we we that's the key that's the that's the big mistake that that we have done throughout history um so we reify our imagination and we treat the uh, what we imagine as though it were a real thing independent of of imagination and that's what we call culture <clears throat> and so culture is infinitely limited it's it's myopic um it's cut off from the natural world it's abstracted and cut off <clears throat> excuse me, what we can call um, artificial intelligence or machine learning is, is that. Um, there's no connection between machine learning, artificial intelligence and technology and living and, and, our, and the living reality that we are actually uh, grow in. So technology is simply an, um, an extension of our abstracted, disembodied, reified um, intellect. And obviously, there's there's tremendous um, um, clashes between the two, um, and that's where this sixth great extinction that we're now facing emanates from, is that we have. And Joe would say, I mean, he said it over and over again that, you know, we're po you know we make these ten thousand million chemicals that are literally poisoning the environment, poisoning our our nest, poisoning our home, poisoning our, our bodies. And we think we can do that with impunity without, you know, without paying the price. <clears throat> we are paying the price. 54% of, of American kids have one or more chronic diseases. Um, this, is, this is a catastrophe 
um, um, that, that we have inflicted on these kids. We have done this to our kids. Um, with this uh, current COVID mess, which is an extension of that same cultural disembodiment, um, basically there was a headline that one of the school systems in the U.S. Um, near Las Vegas reopened because 18 kids had killed themselves um, in, in the, since the lockdowns. So the, this is the price we're paying for this, this monstrosity that's going on. I looked up the research when I was, when I was a kid in the 50s, 7.2 deaths per 100,000 students. Now, uh, one in 12 students consider suicide. So this is what's going on with this, this obvious exponential clash that Joe was talking about, Krishnamurti was talking about, and so on and so forth. So this, this, this uh, clash between disembodied intellect that we pretend is real, as opposed to being grounded in our true nature, which is where the miracles happen. We don't have any miracles in technology. We have <clears throat> miracles, which is what Joe's whole life, when he was said these extraordinary events that occurred that he understood was part of his nature, not part of his imagination, but part of his nature. So this is the core, um, shall we say, crisis. This is the core issue um, that, that the world is, is facing with. <clears throat> and my thesis, my, what little I can contribute to carry forward what Joe was talking about is, as I said, how do we find ways to ground the core identity of children in their true nature and not their cultural clothing, right? That's right now it's, do you, you know, put on the suit of clothes and be a puppet of culture? And that's, your, that's the measure of your health and wealth and your success as a human being. And, and that's, a, that's absolutely madness. So we need to forget that and we need to re-identify as the indigenous cultures did because they lived in nature um, and, and understood their entanglement with it. Um, we, we have you know, lost that for, for centuries and, um, and, and are con continuing to destroy each other and the planet as a result. And this paraphrases exactly what Joe would have said. I suppose the next logical question is what is the solution? And again, this kind of, this kind of segues way into a question I had for you, which was the model imperative, which I suppose would be one potential solution to this idea of enculturation and, and humans not, you know, not, not saying all humans, but, but the fact that so many humans do not reach their potential or actualize themselves in their lifetimes, this concept of the model imperative, maybe could you touch on that, Michael? Yeah, sure. Well, Joe's, Joe preceded epigenetics by 50 years. Epigenetics is the realization that our genetic expression is, is in relationship to the environment. The environment triggers the genes to express, and that's how we adapt to the world. We, we adapt through reading the environment and adapting to it. Now, when we just talked about this cultural overlay that, that, that we that is now the model, right? So nature, it used to be that nature was the model. Nature is no longer the model. So now intellect and culture is, is the model. And now when you think of, of if trying to help a baby discover how to relate to the environment, unquestioned acceptance of the given was Piaget's term for the early child, unquestioned acceptance of the given. And you can imagine that living in a, in a pre-literate or, or um, indigenous environment close to nature and so on, the baby's not only looking at what is happening in the world, but they're also looking at how the adults are relating to the world. How do they relate to fire? How do they relate to grass? How do they relate to butterflies or to spiders or to snakes or whatever it is? And as I said, when we opened up our discussion, I said bonding is both a telepathic, um, it's sensory coming in from the outside, but there's a telepathic component. <clears throat> so as the, as the mom or dad are relating both physically outwardly, but also emotionally inwardly to the scorpion or the butterfly, obviously the resonant image that the information the baby's going to get is going to be very different. 
they don't know whether the butterfly or the, you know, the butterfly or the scorpion doesn't mean anything until the internal message comes in from mom or dad that says, this is beautiful, this is dangerous. And then the baby's going to relate to that object in that way. So that's the model imperative that no human capacity unfolds without an environmental model that shows the utilitarian and necess the necessity of that capacity. So now if you take that over generation after generation after generation, <clears throat> you have a more and more <clears throat> and more disembodied abstracted intellect that is driving the show and less and less modeling of, of what I'm talking about, which is modeling our true nature, which is nature. Um, we don't get that. You don't get it in school. You don't get it any place. Um, you get it used to, you know, what's a successful model today is to be able to navigate your iPhone or your iPad. That's what they consider to be successful in the culture. Um, and at, at the exclusion of where you're at, being present, you know, um, and being connected to the place that you're at and the environment that you're at and being sensitive to how you relate to it because you're, you're either killing it or you're nurturing it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the model imperative. And obviously at this late stage in the game, this change, this new default reality that I'm talking about that Joe was hinting at, he talked about the appropriate, the intelligence of the heart. That was his metaphor for the difference, a different way of being in the world. One he called it's heart centered. He was saying dropping out of the intellect, dropping into this broader field that he called the intelligence of the heart. Um, and it's a perfectly valid um, analogy or metaphor to use. Um, so that needs to be modeled by adults. If, if we want kids to be that, as Gandhi said, we need to be the change we want to see in others. So that's, that's the, actually that's the big challenge is that you have these adulterated adults who are completely disembodied and you know they're not even looking at their kid they're pushing the baby stroller talking on the phone that's how connected they are as parents they think they're looking at a parenting app right they're pushing the baby stroller looking at a baby at a parenting app on their phone completely oblivious resonantly to what's going on between them and the child um to, uh, uh, believing that they're being great parents so that's the model imperative and um, you know that needs that that is the core. We can't bring about something in children that we don't embody and model ourselves. And this is again, Joe, Joe uh, hammered at that um, throughout all of his writings. So that's the model imperative. With with Joe's work and and the fact you just mentioned the the word there, epigenetics. There's, there is a lot of overlap too, and um, a lot of uh, a lot of his work resonates with Bruce Lipton's work because obviously Bruce did so much background work in epigenetics, and in Bruce's book The Biology Belief, he actually touched on the topic of conscious parenting, because again the environment that the that the parents set up for their child is is like so essential to their development, and I guess my question to you is. You know, you kind of alluded to just there in, in your last answer. Parents are just so unconscious. So like how what what is your solution to bring about more self-awareness so that parents can become more conscious so that they can set up a more enriching environment so that children can have more optimal expressions of their genetics? They can have a, a more richer epigenetic environment to maybe allow them to facilitate their potential or to at least get it closer to their potential? Well, that's a, that's a trick question. It's a difficult question. Um, let's, let's uh, go back to Bruce. Um, I've, I've known Bruce for 25 years, um, know him quite well. We, we brought Joe and Bruce together on Touch the Future's website, there's a weekend worth of audios of he and Joe, of Bruce and Joe in dialogue about all of these issues. So it's a very rare, um, very few people understand or you know go there because it's not you know not on the top of their screen. 
<clears throat> but if you're interested in Bruce's work and and how it relates to Joe's work, um, we have you know eight or ten hours of them talking together about that this very thing. So just as a reference, that's on Touch the Future ttfuture.org's website um, in the academy. Um, in terms of the broader question, what do we do with our current crop of parents who are struggling to do the best they can because they were parented in a, in a less than conscious way. So there's the model imperative, right? So you, you then their parents and they go back and you go to their parents, you go back and you go back and you can't find a place where you had it, where you had what, what Bruce is alluding to truly conscious parenting. So it, it hasn't been part of the, of the self world view that we have been brought up with because we've all been enchanted by the same um, massive imagination and culture, et cetera, et cetera, that I talked about. So the best source to begin with is to go to um, uh, the, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness. So the first thing is you realize that you have, you have this thing called attention. Now, attention is deeper than, than what you are attending to. Now, we're attending to our imaginations, but imagination and attention are different qualities or capacities. So imagination is like the show, um, and, and we're investing our attention in the show. The show is so big and so dramatic, and it's just like watching a big screen TV, you know, um, you know, drinking coffee all day. So that's that's what's going on in, in, in our head. So mindfulness is is a way of disengaging and cultivating the capacity to pay attention independent of the show. Now we could say that conscious what we call being conscious is a function of attention, not imagination. Right? We become unconscious when we invest all of our all of our attention in the show we become unconscious we're totally we're blinded by the show we become unconscious um, whether we're staring at the iPhone or whether we're staring at our imagination we become unconscious at that moment in order to break the pattern of unconsciousness we have to be conscious so we have to be able to separate and distinguish between imagination and attention so mindfulness is the, is the age-old practice of making this distinction that we just described and, and moving from there. So mindfulness as a practice or whatever you want to call it, um, you can call it meditation or, you know, there's a million different ways of doing it. But, it's, but this is really what it, what it amounts to. Um, in the, in the, now, the, uh, as far as I know, the Buddhist, the Buddhist tradition is the only tradition in, on the planet that has gone as deeply as they have to understand what is referred to as the science of the mind. That's really what Buddhism is. The Buddhism is not a religion per se in, in, in having, you know, what is God and so on and so forth. Those are, that's a theistic um, um, uh, manifestation. And the issue with the, theistic religions is this is that they, they didn't pay attention to the fact that they were reifying their imagination. So this reification of imagination and projecting gods and, and all this stuff that they have done <clears throat> is, is, the, is the Achilles heel of reification, which they, which they missed. And the same thing with our ego. We, we miss the fact that we've reified it. So we create this image of our ego and then we, then we convince ourselves that it's actually a real thing when in fact it's not, it's just an image. So that's that until we get straight with that, we're not going to have conscious anything. Um, so we have to bring our bring our, our 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 the state of our consciousness or awareness to get in order. Mindfulness is the place to begin. Once you've cultivated this distinction and you've not renormalized now, Reality is not what you imagine. Reality is now has a different context, and you can begin. You can begin then to, um, shall we say, deconstruct the false hopes and false images that we have about culture and our personal identity. 
And that in, in that deconstructing that, separating that and seeing what we're doing with ourselves, we're like a magician who's believing the tricks that we're playing on ourselves. So that's kind of a nice metaphor for what we're doing. So mindfulness is the beginning of what we would call conscious anything, including parenting. Um, and, and, then, and then to, to reground um, our identity in, in our true nature. And again, which I say is, is nature, not imagination. So um, then when, when you've got that going, now you can begin to respond more sensitively to who that child actually is in the moment. Because what we're doing as parents most often is that we're projecting on them what they should be, which again is a cultural projection and overlay. Um, we're not seeing the child for who they really are. We're not really responding to what their needs are. We're, we're, we're projecting our expectations of what they, of our cultural expectations. So we need to break that pattern um, and allow the parent to be really connected with the, the child in a mindful way to use that language. Um, I wrote with Joe a book called Magical Parent, Magical Child. And, and it really talked about what we just went over. Um, and we used what athletes call the zone or what researchers call flow or what children call play as the cornerstone of that work. Because what we wanna do is bring parents out of imagination and enculturation and bring them into the flow state or bring them into the zone to use the athletic metaphor and parent in the zone. You don't wanna be parenting in your culture. You wanna be parenting in the zone. And what is the zone? The zone is when you set aside um, your projections of culture and you're fully present. You give 100% of your attention to what's going on in the present. And children call that play. Um, again, the research community calls it flow. So that's really where we need to get them, but it's, but it's separating those that that cultural overlay dis, distant no longer identifying with the cultural overlay um, in a mindful way opens the door to um, a, you know a, a, a big transformation um, both in self and in world culture that was really where Krishnamurti's work um, was focusing on as well so that's a long answer for you so many questions and segues we could go but i have to wrap up soon because sure. uh, we, only, we only booked in for the hour but i absolutely want to have you back on for a part two and you know because uh, again there's so so much more we can delve into w one area I, I would love for you to touch on because it, again it resonated so strongly with me was and again we, we've kind of spoken about this with epigenetics but it's sort of the importance of the pregnant mother and the environment that we set up for her again, because of this epigenetic environment that the, that the child can get through when it's in the womb of the mother. And it just, it, it made me realize like how important it is that, that the mother feels safe and secure and loved because again, this is being passed on to, to the child. Like, so could you give your thoughts maybe for the listeners on this? And I don't know if you want to touch on maybe how we could, bring this into like more sort of awareness within the social structure of the world we have now. Like I, I know like there's certain countries I, and I haven't actually researched this, but I'm, I know I've heard Joe say like some of the Scandinavian countries, they, they're far ahead of their like parental leave procedures because they can see the benefits that pay off in terms of like crime and crime and addiction rates later on in life. They know how important not only the early years of the child, but even when the child is an embryo inside the mother. Well, again, this is a, we could have a week to talk about the implications of what you're, what you're pointing to. Um, the, you know, this monstrosity, this COVID monstrosity is, is, you know, even, even driving, if, if, if pregnancy and birth was bad before 2020, it's exponentially worse now because of the fear and the mass and all this stuff that's being done. Um, the easiest, the, so you have this technological uh, entity called the medical profession, big pharma, um, 
et cetera, et cetera, this, this technological intervention in this natural process. Um, the, more, the more that the technology goes in, the technology is linked to the intellect. The intellect and technology are basically the same thing. And fear, fear is implicit in that as soon as you come in. So fear becomes the, the envelope um, because that's what the whole medical profession is geared, is based on. Look at COVID. COVID is basically all fear-driven. So, so that fear is creating the cortisol that's, that's flowing through the body of the mother and the baby is being bathed in that epigenetics in that epigenetic environment so naturally it's going to be nervous and have asthma and about you know all these other kinds of complications that are going to come from that so yes you want to have you want the mom to be totally safe but she can't be safe in a technological world there's just, it can't happen so you have to see through again the false hopes and false fears that that technology is is how it's driving the show and once you're liberated from that now you can drop back into a sane um, and shall we say nature oriented um, position and, and you know i'm going to put my bets on you know the billions of years that nature has evolved us to come to this miraculous expression that we are um, rather than uh, Pfizer being able to come up with a jab that's going to correct something or do it, right? So, you know, our, our natural, our, the only immunity is natural immunity, et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing plays true for the, for the, the mom and the birth kind of thing. So how does mom do that? It's, it's almost impossible for moms to do that. Um, she needs a good relationship with her partner so that they're secure together in order for her to be safe. Then you, then you have to, to um, you know, keep the poisons and toxins out of the environment as, as you grow this baby. So you don't have to detox yourself and then, and then live in this, in this uh, as, as detoxified environment as you can. Um, naturally, uh, you would need a home birth because you can't have a, um, a safe birth, a, a non-fear-based birth in the hospital. It's impossible. Um, there, there was a study of thousands and thousands. It was a big study. And the outcomes for both mother and baby are far superior with um, midwife-assisted births at home than they are in the hospital. And it's even more so now. Um, and Joe goes into this at great length. Magical Child is, is, is one of the, is a great repository of, of, of his anger at what the medical institution has done at this very beginning of life. And breaking the bond, breaking the bond, not only with mother, but with nature itself. So technology is breaking the bond, this identity with nature, you're identifying with culture, you're identifying with the technology, not with nature. So this schism that is created is really the, um, the beginning of the end um, in, in Joe's framework. And that's why he was so passionate about um, the, that the medical intervention in the birth process was, was, was breaking this fundamental bond um, with nature, with our own, with our own true nature that is that is um, that has now led us to the sixth great extinction there is no small leap between what we're facing globally out there and this break in the bond between our true nature that joe was hammering about his whole life so i, I can't give you a short bulleted answer as to you know what does a poor mother do um, she has to break she has to see through the the false hope and false fears that technology represents and 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 be grounded in her in her true authentic nature this is exactly what joe described was going on in him in in his little piece that we played he said he he felt this great upwelling of potential and then he felt it drain away and he saw this happening over and over again in himself and in his children and this is this draining away of our authentic nature and potential is 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 the key to this whole show and um and uh, you know 
30 years ago, we had 30 more years until we hit the wall, right? But now we don't have those 30 years. We're closer to the wall than we've ever been. So the, the, uh, the, um, it's now or never. <laughs> There's a fabulous documentary. I'm sure you're well aware of um, what babies want where Joseph is one of the interviewees in that. And it, it speaks in depth of, of, you know, what really a, a baby needs from day one and, yeah, that's right. a, it's a phenomenal documentary. I've actually sent that to many of my friends who are going to be first-time parents, and yeah. I, I'm not too sure everyone watched it, but some some of them did. So, uh, but it's a, it's phenomenal. And um, so, for anyone listening, I'll, I'll put that into the show notes. Just before we go, Michael, just for the listeners, um, you've mentioned your website and some of the work you've done with Joe and also with other brilliant individuals such as Bruce Lipton, and obviously you've you've done work on Chris Minority and, and Yokananda. Where can people find out more about your work and, and maybe also to speak about this this new book that you've just released on on Joseph's life work, so the, the life and insights of Joseph Shilton Pierce? So um, 2010, we got together with Joe and brought about 30, 35 individuals who were close to his work together at a symposium. We actually hosted it at Krishnamurti's residence in Ojai. And we spent a weekend talking about why he wrote each of his books, what was the real catalyst for that. So at that same time, around that same time, I told Joe that many people have read one of his books, but all of his books are a continuation of his passionate quest to understand our amazing capacities and our self-inflicted limitations. That's the phrase he used. So um, I said, well, we should somehow bring it together so that people, you know, they, they need to see the whole, then they can dig into the parts. Now, there's no way that just seeing the whole, you don't, you don't get the details of the parts, but you have the whole. So uh, I, I took seven of his major works and, and gave myself a scheme of 10%. I'm assuming 300 pages per book. So I said around 30 pages. So I went through each of these major books and pulled out 30 pages from, from the 300 pages that seemed to represent the core thread that he was really developing in that work. And we brought that together as one volume. Um, it's called The Life and Insights of Joseph Chilton Pierce amazing capacities and self-inflicted limitations. And the books that are included, of course, are Crack, The Bond of Power, Magical Child, Evolution's End, Biology of Transcendence, The Death of Religion and Rebirth of Spirit, and his last work, which was called Strange Loops. So that book is, is just about going to be on the market. Um, they're just finishing it up. It will be... Um, it will be re released soon. I'm going to, um, of course, do some webinars and some symposiums and things like that that we're going to be doing um, because this is Joe's. Nobody has done. Nobody in history has done what Joe has done. He is unique in his ability to synthesize core biology. You know, cellular kinds of things. How the brain is put together with this infinite potential that the quantum universe represents, what we call spirit. So you have, and Joe has woven those things together from his own direct experience in a way that nobody's ever done. And we need his insights. His insights help us crack this um, trap that we're in, that we've been trapped in for millennia so Joe's, Joe's work, um, you know, Bohm's work, Joe's work, Krishnamurti's work, their focus was, was, um, is literally our salvation. We either wake up to what these guys were talking about passionately for their whole lives, or we just are lemmings and we're just going to just, you know, hold on to our iPad as we go over Niagara Falls. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, so Touch the Future, ttfuture.org is the repository of 20 years of interviews with Joe. They're all up there. Um, the new book will be out soon. Again, we'll be doing some um, posts and, and actually starting to promote it. I haven't 
promoted it at all yet. Um, but it, but now I'm beginning to focus on it. And as you listen to this, you know, initial clip, it's much better listening to him than it is me. So the goal here is to reincarnate Joe for this next most critical generation, um, so that they have access to him, they hear him. Um, that's what that's what we're all about. Is um, you know this this generation, my six year old daughter's generation, is the tipping point for humanity. So they need to know who Joe is and and these other teachers. Yeah, that's great. So if the, it's it's a rare day that passes by if I don't mention his name either to myself, my own thoughts, or to to someone in conversation because again, right. his writings have had such a profound influence on me. Michael, uh, I gotta hit off here, but um, listen, I absolutely would love to continue this conversation. Um, hopefully, on the hopefully in the not too distant future, but I'll do everything I can to to spread the word in terms of everything you have over at your website and including the the Bruce Lipton and and Joe, the audios, I'd say the listeners would very much want to get a link to that. So I'll make sure that everything that was mentioned will be linked up in the show notes and of course, Joe's new Good book. Good deal. Well, thank um, you for reaching out. My pleasure to be here. It's of course wonderful to be able to share this experience that I've had. It's quite rare. So thanks for the invitation. Great. I'll say goodbye to you offline. So for everyone listening, until next time, take care, be well. And as I always say, stay strong.